Melisine came to Lusignan and circled it three times, shrieking woefully in a plaintive female voice. Up in the fortress and in the town below, people were utterly amazed. They knew not what to think, for they could see the form of a serpent, yet they heard the lady's voice issuing forth from it. Hi, this is Alexa Sand. And this is Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our fellow creatures today. Although, the creature we're doing today may not help us understand our fellow creatures today, although it helps us understand a lot of interesting things. It, it may help us understand ourselves. Today, our focus is the Lamia. Oh, so that passage that you read, that's, that's the Lamia? Well, that comes from a late medieval, sort of late 14th century romance called The Romance of Melusine. It was written by the French author Jean Darat. And um, it's a description of this legendary sort of foremother of numerous royal houses in, um, and aristocratic houses in late medieval and early modern Europe. Um, she was a fairy creature who was half woman, half snake, but only on Saturdays. And we can get into her story <laughs> a little bit more. But the Lamia itself is a an ancient creature, a creature who is first described in Greek mythology, um, but may actually be descended in a sense from even older mythological creatures, including the goddess Lilith. You may have heard of her. Some people I have heard think of that Lilith. she was Adam's first wife. <laughs> <laughs> His first wife. So, so the half snake, half woman, is that uh, consistent throughout or is that you know, one of the sides that we see is so often with these creatures. Well, it's definitely an aspect of the of the creature. When she's described in classical mythology, it's not entirely clear that she has a snake's tail. Um, she becomes monstrous. So she starts out as a very beautiful young woman, uh, the daughter of a king and queen in Libya. And, you know, Zeus, being Zeus, is attracted to her and has several children with her. His wife, Hera, the goddess, is not pleased. And she never is. in her typical fashion, no, no. Well, I mean, come on. I know. Uh, she, has, she has some beef with Zeus that's <laughs> she really sure pretty does. legitimate. <laughs> so anyhow, she, um, she kidnaps the children. And according to, you know, classical sources, nobody knows what happens to the children, but Lamia, being a you know loving mother, is driven mad by this loss of her children, um, and becomes a, a child murderer herself. So she starts, in some accounts, sucking the blood of of children. So she becomes kind of a boogeyman, and uh, Zeus, whether out of pity or out of you know revenge against Hera, it's not exactly clear why um, he he transforms her into a monster. But in the classical sources, the main thing that this monster has is the ability to take out her own eyes and put them back in. So the snaky part isn't really mentioned. That seems to come along later. Yeah, that 
that but taking out of the eyes. <laughs> the removable eyes thing yeah, is I don't some, know what certainly to do something that. That, that affects the sort of Lamia lore into the into the early modern period, but there's never any ex I mean, is there an explanation? I mean, is is that is this a, a logical uh result? I mean, how does it function? Well, it's possible that like in some versions of the classical story, she tears out her own eyes in grief, you know? Ah. So maybe the taking out the eyes and putting them back is a way of giving her back her vision. Um, but somehow removable eyeballs are just a little weird. It's part of her monstrousness. I mean, she's, you know, the vampire people, right? And the the people who are really heavy into vampires and maybe even believe that they actually exist. Um, those people are really fond of the Lamia because they view her as the first vampire. And, you know, she has all of this sort of freakishness. The romantics like Keats and other romantic um, poets and novelists really liked the Lamia too. She's this sort of intensely sexualized figure. Yeah, of, the seductress, right? You know, yeah. But like a lot of our our fantastic beasts, she's also a ferocious mother. I mean, she is a figure of fertility. She has lots of children. She builds her identity around her children, and then her whole sort of monstrousness proceeds from the loss of her children. So Meliocene. Mm-hmm. Melusine yes. is a mother, and that that's sort of her prime characteristic. She's also a daughter, though, and so I want to give you a little background on her. Okay. She is the daughter of the King of Scotland and his fairy lover. So he he takes this fairy woman to wife. Interesting. Or to bed, anyway. And she says, on the condition that you never come into my bedroom when I'm bathing or when I'm giving birth. Well, of course he breaks, because it's a fairy tale, of course he breaks the rules, right? And he comes in when she's giving birth to three children. She has triplets, they're all girls. Um, And so she's like, I gotta go. She takes the babies, she runs away to the Isle of Avalon, that mythological hidden isle of Uh Avalon. And there she proceeds to raise her children, her three daughters, one of whom is Melusine. Uh, Melusine's the most rebellious of the daughters. And she uh, finally asks her mother, you know, what are we doing here? And her mother says, well, here's a long story. You know, your father does that. Anyhow, Melusine is furious. She's furious with her father. So she entraps him in a mountain with all of his riches. And her mother is not happy about this because even though her mother has had to leave her father, apparently she still, you know, is quite fond of him. So she banishes Melusine and she curses her. And she says, on Saturdays, you will be a woman down to the navel and a snake from the navel down. Why a snake? We don't know, but there you go. So Melusine runs away and she's wandering in the forest, sort of a repeat of her parents' story. A young nobleman Raymond of Lusignan comes and he sees her and asks her to marry him and sure enough she says well sure but only if you don't visit me on Saturdays on Saturdays they marry yep no Saturdays so they marry they have 10 children um some of their children are sort of bizarre probably as a result of her fey origins 
And he's puzzled and troubled by this Saturday ban. And he's always tempted to look in on her, but he, he resists the temptation until finally it becomes too much for him. And he sees her in her bath and she's, she's bathing and she's half snake. And he's horrified, but he doesn't say anything. But later, one of their sons kills another son and, you know, he's, he's grief stricken and he says in public to her, you know, it's all because of you, you dirty serpent. And so the <laughs> secret's out. She's been betrayed. She transforms into a dragon. For some reason, she gives him two magic rings and then she flies away. And she only comes back every three years to look in on her sons and make sure that they're all doing well. Yeah. So that's Melusine. Yeah, daughter, sort of like, it's like a doubling of the mother because she, because the story's doubled and there's the mother-daughter and then there's the mother-children mother, mother children thing all over Oh again. yeah, and it's like, I mean, it's rich pickings for you literary scholars. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that the, uh, the serpent part it's not, it's not uh, as we might call genetic, right? In other words, it's not part of the nature of the fae creature to have that. You said that's a pun, you know, like that's the mother's punishment or curse, the mother's curse. Mm-hmm. Mother's curses always come true in various mm-hmm. tales, right? So mm-hmm. is the monstrosity part of the fairy origins or is the monstrosity the, the result of the, you know, the, the curse? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question in uh, the... English version of the Roman de Melusine, which is just called Melusine, or the Romance of Partenay, um, which was written around 1500. The, um, the author comments that Melusine was really devout. She went to church. She wanted to have a burial in the church at Lusignan. And when her husband betrayed her in this way, that was her sort of greatest grief was that now she would be condemned to being a serpent forever, or at least until the end of time. And, um, you know, would stand before God at the end of time in the form of a serpent instead of in the form of a woman. So there's this, you know, enormous regret that she feels. And it's not really her fault at this point, right? It's really her husband who's, you know, can't follow the rules. And yeah. suspects her of adultery, I guess, you know, and yet she's innocent. And so it's a very, she's a very complex character because she's, you know, a serpent and we've, and a dragon. And we've talked about that, how those animals are aligned with Satan and with evil, but she isn't intrinsically evil. I don't no. know. It's really no. interesting stuff. And, and furthermore, I mean, there are these, the, the Roman de, de Melusine, the one composed in 1393 by Jean Dara, I mean, the context for that is really interesting because the patron is um, the Duke Jean de Berry. So John of Berry is the younger brother of the King of France. And part of his inheritance as, as a royal duke is the lands around Lusignan in uh, the Poitou. So the Poitou region was highly contested in the Hundred Years' War, and this is in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. So both the French royal family, the Valois, and the English royal family are claiming these lands around Lusignan in the Poitou. And that's because they both claim descent from Melusine. I'm not kidding. (laughs) 
So Jean de Berry's mother was a princess of um, Bohemia and the, oh, sorry, a princess of Luxembourg, not Bohemia. And the royal family of Luxembourg, who were Holy Roman emperors at this point in time, uh, traced their descendants from Raymond and Melusine. You see? Remember, they had 10 sons, so there's a lot of opportunity to be a descendant of Melusine. The, the English royal family also traced their descendants through the Plantagenets to, to Raymond and Melusine. So you have these kinds of like, again, these doublings. So you have this contest over, you have a contest over the Poitou that's sort of played out in this literary field around this character of Melusine, who is herself really sort of ambiguous and, and I mean, she's monstrous, but she's not a monster. You know what I mean? Yes, but I still, I think it's, it's interesting because we might see her as, as kind of problematic, or at least as like presented as problematic. It is certainly in, the, in her own story. You know, it's not, it's not a, something that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. It might seem problematic from our perspective because we expect something that, that is, you know, a shameful thing to, per, to persist, right? Or, or, you know, you would think, oh, if Melusine's in your ancestry, it's like a, you know, skeleton in the closet kind of idea. But instead, she becomes, mm-hmm. the blood of Melusine becomes emblematic of nobility. So everyone wants to be related to Melusine because it means that they're noble and have a claim on lands, titles, legitimacy, and all those kinds of things. You know? Exactly. And I mean, there's also this whole thing with Melusine where, okay, she's a lady who's a half snake on Saturdays, but on the other six days of the week, um, well, okay, maybe Sunday she's in church, but on during the working week, she's working really hard to unwild the Poitou. So part of her legend is that when she arrived in Poitiers, or in, sorry, in, in Lusignan, she found a very wild, untamed country. It was mostly forest. There were lots of beasts running in the woods. You know, people, people weren't safe. Um, there wasn't enough food. And she initiates this campaign of castle building and turning forest into farmland. So she's a civilizing influence. And she really tames the wild and makes it productive and and makes it more human. So here's this woman who's not really a woman and she's or who's only partly a woman. And yet she's also this kind of representative, I guess, of, of culture and of, of civilization. Yeah. Civility, which is usually presented as the opposite of the, the monstrous, which is the wild, the wildness of the wild. Right. Yeah. That's where, yeah. that's where so monsters she's live. Like the civilizing monster. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. She's the opposite of the wild man. Oh, Melusine goes back to a Scottish fairy, right? Her mm-hmm. ancestry, right? Her mother, I guess. Right. And yeah, Though, so her mother, well, okay, her father was Scottish. Her mother was just a fairy. It was just, <laughs> a regional, I mean, maybe a regional fairy, because there are certainly, <laughs> there are all these other kind of parallel or stories similar, you know, like the, the tropiness of this story may be going to be biting us, but there is the long legend mm-hmm. of the Selkie or the, like the seal maiden who it's the same story, mm-hmm. right? They, they marry, a, you know, a regular person, but they're, you know, like you have to either keep them from getting to their original skin or 
you know, you're not supposed to find out that they're really a seal. And if you do, then they rush back to the water and take your children with them uh, or maybe not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. that that's, I mean, those stories are there. And I wonder whether some of that, some of those, those uh, folk legends go back to, or like ultimately Celtic in origin because of the, you know, the, the the sort of the way it's traced. In which case, the difference between Melusine and the classical Lamia is pretty, pretty clear. I mean, both are mothers, sure. Um, but, you know, one of them is a vengeful figure who's sort of turned into a monster by her grief. The other sort of resists monstrosity as long and as best she can. And then even once she's a dragon, she doesn't do harm. She comes back to look after her sons. And I mean, the thing about the thing about the classical Lamia is that she really is a bloodsucker. She's really terrifying. And she's such a sort of emblem for the terrifying that, um, for example, in the 15th century, in the sort of humanist context in Italy, Poliziano, you know, the great humanist scholar, uh, when he was giving his sort of introductory lecture on Aristotle's prior analytics at the University of Florence in 1492, he he was a very unusual lecturer. I was just thinking about this as I'm preparing my fall courses, actually. He would, you had to write a preliminary oration for your courses. So the first day of class, you would stand up and give a very, a very manicured, prepared speech. And Poliziano was famous for doing his in poetic form and using all kinds of literary metaphors. And so he gave this presentation on on Aristotle that he titled Lamia. And he's comparing his critics, essentially, or people who are bad philosophers, basically. He's comparing them to these blood-sucking female vampires, you know, these (laughs) these half-snake women. and he uses the myth of Lamia to sort of articulate his position as a as an interpreter of Aristotle. It's fascinating stuff because he assumes that his his audience is familiar with this with this character. Yeah, and would immediately see it as the kind of monstrous negative bloodsucker rather than you know interestingly mm-hmm. interesting and attractive uh, medieval romance heroine. Exactly. So, you know, I don't know, the Melusine story kind of loses force in England after the end of the Hundred Years' War and doesn't really show up in the sort of 15th, 16th century revival of Arthurian literature. It remains popular in Europe where these royal families, in in fact, even today, just not that long ago uh, in the city of Luxembourg, they erected a statue to Melusine. But... um, but what does Topsil have to say about all of this? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, the problem for the the kind of interesting and maybe potentially attractive Lamia figure in the early modern period is the, the problem of the witch, because everything gets subsumed mm-hmm. um, in the, the sort of the category of witch. And and Lamia simply becomes a witch, right? It's another word for a witch. A Lamia is a is a witch, mm-hmm. or can be used in that way. Um, so, mm-hmm. like a lot of that kind of lore just gets dumped into or subsumed under the whole uh, kind of uh, the witch craze, 
so the discussions of in, that mentioned Lamia are often you know discussions of witchcraft, um, where they're mm-hmm. they you know they sort of see Lamia as the as the figure of a witch. Uh, but the classical mm. stuff persists, right? They recycle the classical stories and, you know, and they're sort of very interested in that. Um, and the removable eye, I mean, Lamia becomes a kind of a figure for paying attention to the errors of other people, but not to your own errors. And that's that idea that uh, they said mm. that Lamia puts on spectacles when she goes abroad, but takes them off when she comes home. So she's blind to, you know, like, it means you're blind to what's around you, but you're very good at scrutinizing, scrutinizing other people's um, faults and errors. Kind of like the internet today, I think. <laughs> right? it's sort of it's it's a Lamia world, but they were still pretty sure that there was like maybe there was a Lamia. There was such a thing as a as a Lamia, and that's because in the translations, in the early translations of the Bible, the early English translations, some of the monstrous creatures were called Lamias. So. Uh, Wycliffe, who's one of the earliest English translators, there's two places sort of in the in the Bible. Uh, one's in Isaiah, one's in Lamentations, where there's these creatures mentioned, and Wycliffe just says, "Oh, it's a it's a it's a Lamia, right?" And uh, so you have those translations there. Even though later on, like the King James Bible says, you know, like no, 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 it's it's not a Lamia, it's a sea monster, right? Like that's what the original, like we're going to translate it mm-hmm. as sea monster or an owl. All right. So the other passage is like, it's not a Lamia. Hmm, it's an, an owl. owl. Yes. Although in the margins, the King James Bible says like, well, it's, it's either an owl or it's a night monster or a sea monster or a seal. He kind of like, that's a kind of a, it's kind of a big range there, but it, you know, like it gave the, yeah. the kind of antiquary, <laughs> the philologists, the people who were kind of like interested in biblical texts were, you know, were very interested in like, what are these creatures? They must really exist because they're attested in the Bible. Where are they? What are mm-hmm. they? And and Topsil, you know, ultimately Topsil says, we know there has to be a Lamia because it's in the Bible, right? Although it's clear from mm-hmm. Topsil's account, and if you're a new listener to our podcast, Topsil is this encyclopedist that I always use for the early modern period because he has this big long book on on all the animals. But but Topsil does begin by saying, you know, some people say Lam- the Lamia is a, a woman, right? Some people say the Lamia is a serpent. Some people say the Lamia is a fish. And then Topsil says, so like legitimately you could ask, is there such a thing as a Lamia, right? There's just all this lore. And he presents it as a problem. Mm-hmm. And he ultimately resolves that problem by saying, yeah, well, there's these biblical passages. Uh, so he then retells a lot of the classical stories about the woman, the classical myth that you you talked about, the woman who eats other children is the sort of the blood sucking, um, seductive vampire mm-hmm. person. But then eventually he says, okay, but since this is a book on animals, I'm going to tell you about the animal mm-hmm. Lamia, which lives in the Libyan desert. And mm-hmm. Topsil's Lamia has, well, it has the back parts of a goat. It has the forelegs of a bear. Mm-hmm. It has hooves of horse hooves. And it has scales all over. And then it has a woman's head and very prominent breasts. But then it also has huge, smelly testicles. Hmm. And yeah. supposedly, oh, it can only make hissing noises, that, right? That, that, the, the testicles are Aristophanes' fault. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so like he's, in, he's importing <laughs> that into his real creature, right? So he's, he's assembling right. all these things, right? 
he creates this creature, which he sure lives in the Libyan desert, uh, and it can only make hissing noises. It smells like a seal, right? Hence the sort of he's getting the seal, you know, the seal in there as well. Um, and it, hmm. you know, it it preys on uh, wild animals, but it also preys on humans, particularly shipwrecked mariners. And it does this by apparently exposing. Not <laughs> no, not not the babies, right? Uh, it apparently does this by you know expose. This is again he's calling up on the calling on the classical myth. It exposes the you know these lovely breasts, and somehow these men are then transfixed by this, despite the fact that the heart creature is very monstrous and horrifying in so many ways. Uh, and you know come closer to see these breasts, and then are of course eaten by the by the lamia. You know, and so he gives it a wow, he gives it a, a location. There. Yeah, it really is, right? <laughs> um, and it, you know, a lot of the a lot of the the kind of uh, the anti feminism or even misogyny in some of these earlier accounts is getting recycled into this account. But then the fact that it's it's you know this the, the woman in the front, but also like the the large smelly testicles, which he has to like create a place mm-hmm. for mean that it's also a little bit, you know, you could say like, oh, look, transphobia, right? That there's, you know, like this idea, this sort mm-hmm. of anxiety about, you know, um, creatures that are sort of both male and female or like not, you know, which, which mm-hmm. are they, which, which are they, are they this thing at the same time? I guess you could, you could say that that's, that's true too. Ultimately, I think he's really just sort of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get every story. I'm going to, I'm going to assume that every story is true. And I'm going to write them all into a real creature and put it in the Libyan desert because that's where you put the, the wildest of the wild things. Though I think he's missing one element, which is the beaver. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a medieval source. Um, gosh, it's just so crazy. It's a, it's an encyclopedia, late medieval encyclopedia. And, and um, due to a mistranslation, the Lamia is described as looking something like a beaver. Huh. Um, and there's a lot of like Aristotle's beaver description from, you know, his, his De Animalia um, mixed in there. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because if you look at these sort of medieval bestiary, late medieval bestiary illuminations of, the Lamia, it looks kind of like a beaver. Um, huh. But Topsil's animal, which has, you know, front and back legs, is maybe more similar to the, like, it, it's a quadruped, the way that the late medieval encyclopedic tradition has it, though the beaver is never mentioned. Um, so it has something to do with a mistranslation. Right. Um, but in any case, it's just sort of a weird, a weird side note. On yeah, I wonder. I wonder medieval. whether Topsil knew about the the beaver. I mean, there is the the smell, the like the pronounced smell. Which yes, those, yeah. it does go back to Aristophanes. But on the other hand, that's also that is a beaver quality because uh, right, they have those glands. Really smell. Yeah, there's an engraving of it in Topsil. It's it's quite entertaining. I'll we'll, I'll put it up on our, our website. So he's not disinterested in the Lamia. He, it feels yeah. very, very much like, you know, what we would say sort of phoned in, in terms of the text itself. A standardized version of, um, yeah. So, I mean, this, 
this description by Thomas of Cantimpre, it's a completely different animal as far as I can tell. It's a large, cruel animal that comes out of the forest at night to break trees and branches, thus the beaver thing. Huh. Um, and if you're bitten by it, you can only be healed if you hear it roar. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to keep yeah. a couple in captivity I mean, that very... they can make them roar to like cure people of the as an antidote. And he cites Aristotle, but he cites something that Aristotle says about the beaver, not about Lamia. So it's right. just very bizarre. And it may be from not even a mistranslation, but somebody, um, you know, a scribal error in the source that uh, Thomas was using for this. Well, so um, th- there's another yeah. tradition in which Alamia is a, a large fish. And, and in fact, for a of while, it um, it's a it's a, another word for a great white shark. Well, yeah, and that's getting back to the classical tradition where she might be a daughter of Poseidon and she's associated with the shark. And in fact, one of her children is the toothed pit of Scylla. Huh. Crazy yeah. Stuff. It is. It's, it is. And, and there is always this thread of toothiness. I guess beavers are toothy, too. Like the sharp teeth the sucking of blood, all of that. Yeah. It seems like that might even be more important than the serpentine quality. Yeah. Like maybe it's less about the snake tail and more about the snake teeth. (laughs) I don't know. And she's also a figure for hypocrisy. I mean, that's what, that's what um, Poliziano is talking about. Like you hypocritical. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, busy bodies, basically. Yeah, that's the that's what so. I was saying about the the removable eyes, right? The idea that you know you exercise, yeah. you're able to like perceive the sins of others, but not your own sins. Um, right. Yeah. Although you know, Topsel gives no commentary or explanation of of how, like, why the why the lamia would put in her eyes when she goes off to eat people, and then take them off when she comes home. I mean, there's why? <laughs> I mean, one possible explanation in the classical sources is that basically part of the curse that Hera laid upon her was she was grieving so extremely for these children that she couldn't sleep. So she she could never sleep. Ah, uh, okay. So you have to go to, to, go to sleep. You gave her the, yeah, <sighs> you take out your eyes to go to as a contact lens when wearer, I, I kind of get it. Like, that's part of my nighttime ritual is taking out my eyes. I used to wear contact lenses. Yeah, it was just kind of a relief when you when they got out of your eyes and you feel like, now I can truly rest. Oh, yeah, and then you can fall asleep. Exactly, yeah. You don't have to have that yeah. anxiety. If I fall asleep with my lenses in, then I'm going to wake up with sandy eyes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's so interesting. Here's this creature who is, in some ways, really real, right? Like, we're relating <laughs> to the Lamia. Of course we are. <laughs> but... It, is entirely fantastical in the sense of um, almost in the, like the Freudian sense, this idea of a, a figure that you need to work out some kind of psychological thing. I, and I also feel like we can't, we can't have this episode without mentioning Starbucks coffee oh, and the, the logo. And, and the, yeah, although, so I was going to say, you know, we should, you know, should we talk about mermaids or, or are we going to save that for its own episode, which we probably should, but obviously well, the mermaid mermaids is another. are their own thing. Yeah. But the Starbucks um, logo, she is kind of 
based on a, a woodcut image of Melusine. So, oh, you know, okay. I don't know why that Melusine has two. I mean, there's if you ask the sort of large number of um, very conservative Christian commentators online who's, who boy, who are advocating a boycott of Starbucks um, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is that their logo represents this female demon character of Lilith slash Melusine slash the Lamia, um, who, you know, in the original logo, they like to point out is really sexualized. You can see her breasts and her, her two tails are split. So she's like spreading her legs for you. There's all of this sort of hysteria about that. If you mind the internet. I um, seem to recall reading reading some of those, those articles. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this idea that Starbucks is actually a satanic corporation. I mean, whatever you can say what you want, (laughs) but there certainly is this kind of, and there is an association. Of course, Starbucks is called Starbucks because Starbucks, the character in Moby, in Dick. Moby Dick, is obsessed with coffee, right? You know, a lot of merchant ships that carried coffee from colonial outposts back to Europe in the 17th century or thereabouts, you know, would have a kind of uh, Melusine or, or mermaid type figurehead, right? So yes. there's this whole sort of yeah, it's very interesting scary. association between coffee and the sea and mermaids and sirens and who knows what else. Yeah, sexual icons. And coffee. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so there, there is a big tangle in there. I don't know whether that says more about the early modern or corporate capitalism than the Middle Ages, but there's something there. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think... Based on what we've said, it's it's interesting how hard it is to pin down the Lamia, you know, as an easy figure mm-hmm. for any single thing, because you might think you 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 have one version of the story and you think, oh well, it's it's just you know, male anxiety, uh, anti-feminism, those kinds of things, but then there's all this powerful you know female stuff going on mm-hmm. in some of these stories that contradicts that yeah don't forget the rings the magical rings of power that she leaves with her husband even yeah, though yeah. he's betrayed her and yeah. those are the same rings by the way that become the rings in the sort of wagnerian sense the you know the 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 Rhinegold ring. The Rhine, so, from the from yeah. the Rhine maidens who are themselves Melusine type figures, exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Which is why so, we, we see now these figures start everywhere. Talking about the yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean the 19th century was obsessed with Melusine and the Lamia, and there are all of these sort of, you know, pre-Raphaelite and um, you know, other paintings by, you know, John William Waterhouse in particular was fond of painting um this figure of the lamia slash enchantress this whole sort of school of of um paintings that are you know arthurian in their yeah vaguely arthurian in their subject matter so So the the lamia of medieval romance ultimately wins out over the lamia of natural history horrifying and odor odor, odorous and goaty (laughs) 
Yeah, no, this is a very sexy Lamia who yeah. you get by like, you know, by 1900, you have these super sexy, nymphy, you know, basically softcore Lamia imagery. Right. <laughs> and we have the romantic poets to thank for that whole trajectory. We really we need to invite like a Keats scholar on to talk about how the, that the, all happened. The 19th century. <laughs> Lamia, which is the one that I think that you know you and I sort of inherit via you know the via, mm-hmm. via Keats and 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 other things. So mm-hmm. the long troubled history of the Lamia is probably yeah. less less visible, I think, uh, these days. I don't know how how it's uh, what the Lamia looks like in say um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons lore. Oh, but she's definitely there. And and I mean, as I was saying, if you if you spend any time on the sort of internet universe of the vampire people, I'll just call them, um, they are really, really interested in her as a in, kind in of mother figure, as a founding figure, and not in the Melusinian sense, but in the Lilith sense, this idea of a kind of counter-Christian figure of power and of female divinity, I guess. I don't know. Right. I'm kind of who, who has been there, but who has been conceived yeah. as monstrous uh, simply because of the the, the propaganda for Eve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and all of the sort of you know, I mean, this is a very, I think, consciously or unconsciously, it's positioning against the sort of patriarchal constructs of traditional Christianity and saying, you know, no, we reject that. We we reject this kind of um, demonization of the female or the feminine. Yeah, which I know in a way it calls back uh, some of the things we were saying about our the concept of tranimality, right? This idea that the mm-hmm. that you know reclaiming the 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 animal as not monstrous but as a sort of a source of mm-hmm. you know, pride and um, honor, etc. Whatever you want to call it. Um, but re- refiguring yeah. that story um, in, in that has been traditionally told right. is if you're part animal, then somebody has done something wrong at some point, somewhere along the way, and you are to be reprehended. Right. The whole figure of Lilith in terms of sort of feminist rhetoric is really interesting too, because she is this sort of fundamentally other trajectory, a could have been of, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And, and also a, f- a foreign element in, you know, the early Hebrew Bible. So I don't know. I think like it's it's no coincidence that that very popular uh, music festival featuring only women musicians back in the 90s was called Lilith Fair. Lilith Fair, yeah. I think it's kind of interesting that we've we've ended with Lilith because she is not a beast in the sense of uh, an animal. But her otherness and her her sort of foreignness make her suspect and make her, at least in the biblical tradition, a, a negative figure, a, a foreign demon, basically. Yeah. I mean, she is sort of broadly speaking, you know, a figure of de- dehumanizing. Human in form, but not human in nature. <laughs> seals. It's all, it all comes down to seals, I think. <laughs> It seals all the way down. It seals all the way down, actually. Right? Like, I mean, they're just so human, sort of. All right. That's all we have time for. I think we've had our hour.
If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 